Greetings, friends, and welcome back for another episode of The Encouraging Word. I'm here with Stephen Young, uh, Director of Youth Ministries at uh, our wonderful Rocky River United Methodist Church. My name's Paul Bennett, Associate Pastor, and uh, we keep on chugging along. Good to be with you now, and uh, I'm pr- pushing... Let's see, about three years of uh, three years of podcast. Is it? Is it three years? No, wait, wait. Yeah, it is. We, we yeah. Oh my goodness. Two, uh, two and well, a half. This pushing next three. Next spring would be three. Next right? spring would be yeah. three. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so crazy. I'm jumping ahead of things a bit, but. Wow. But uh, what what a journey it's been, and thank you to all who have uh, been with us, even if uh, not quite from the beginning. It's good to just be able to, to come into your, your homes and, and have uh, these engaging discussions and, and to know that you're joining us in the, in the process. So, uh, welcome, welcome, friends, as we continue uh, what has been a delightful short series here on the uh, first several chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to conclude that today with Genesis chapter 3. The, uh, the importance of these three chapters cannot be overstated uh, truly, and that's why Stephen and I decided to devote an entire series on th- these three chapters. So many concepts and, and uh, themes throughout the, the Bible have their foundation, their birth here in Genesis 1 through 3. So I uh, wanted to take some time to really dive into them. So thanks for uh, joining us today. We'll start with our, our fit segments, those things in our lives that are uh, funny interesting uh thought-provoking I, I can't remember the last time something funny has happened <laughs> that i've uh, been able to share right. so yeah. i need to work on that right. maybe i'll just create something funny right. i'll do something maybe i'll pull a prank on steven and i'll be able to share that for yeah. my fit segment or maybe you should just tell dad jokes on the air, <laughs> on air. i, I could we could do that <laughs> but uh you know, the ridicule I get at home for telling them just uh, makes me think that the rest of the world would not be interested. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for our, our fit segments uh, today, Stephen and I have something in mind. So I, I'll uh, go ahead and share uh, mine. And, and this is actually, I, I'm not somebody who puts a, a lot of time and energy into reading the news. And it's uh, not because I don't find it valuable. It just doesn't doesn't seem to fit on the plate right now. Um, anyhow, and, and usually if I'm seeking out something to read or, or listen to, I just uh, fall into either a podcast or, or some sort of a narrative book um, that can take me to another world uh, for a moment. But uh, uh, So I, I didn't read this firsthand. I'm, I'm hearing this secondhand, so uh, don't, uh, don't feel the need to check my sources or anything. But uh, just a, an interesting kind of twist to the, the ongoing uh, war in uh, Ukraine that uh, I heard from somebody yesterday was this. Um, the, the nation, a nation that borders uh, Russia is Kazakhstan. And uh, my understanding is that, uh, that Vladimir Putin has instituted a draft um, and did so uh, actually a number of weeks ago or, or more in the interest of trying to uh, strengthen uh, the numbers in the Russian military. And one of the results of this has been a number of uh, Russians obviously fleeing Russia. This was taking place long before this, but now especially uh, folks who are trying to flee the draft that have no interest in being a part of this war. And a number of them have crossed the border into Kazakhstan. And uh, these uh, tend to be in this particular area, in this particular context, uh, wealthier Russians who are entering Kazakhstan and and have the ability, uh, once crossing the border, to to really settle in and and, um, 
and uh, purchase homes or even uh, stay in, in hotels for long periods of time. And it's uh, had an interesting and uh, somewhat negative effect on the local Kazakhstan uh, folks who, uh, my understanding is for years, because of their um, somewhat lesser uh, economic status, have uh, been servants in, in the homes of and in the communities of, of Russian uh, families and, and neighborhoods across the border. The, the Kazakhstan folks have crossed into Russia to get uh, these low-income jobs, and, and now these wealthy Russians are fleeing uh, Russia into Kazakhstan and, and causing some turmoil as far as uh, the, the, the folks of Kazakhstan having access to some of the things that they need. So uh, just one more interesting twist and, and perspective on the results of, of this war. Uh, we know the results of any war are, are traumatic and uh, pretty horrific. And, um, of course, those that uh, you see on the front lines and in the battles themselves are, are the most difficult to take in. But uh, some of these things that happen kind of beneath the surface, behind the scenes that, that a lot of folks aren't aware of, um, that there, there would be um, maybe a, a sense of empathy for these uh, Russians who are, are fleeing as uh, in, in all real sense of the word, they are refugees, but at the same time, um, they are having a, a negative impact on a number of folks who are in equally difficult circumstances in, in Kazakhstan. So I thought I'd share that as uh, just one more thing for you to have to wrestle with and, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, process from a moral standpoint and ethical standpoint uh, just for fun. So, um, so that's what's going on in, in, uh, in Russia, Kazakhstan, anything, uh, Stephen, you want to share from around the world or, or uh, interesting things more local here? <coughs> yeah, so uh, my, my funny, interesting, thought-provoking thing is um, something that's kind of made international news happened here in Ohio. So... Um, I didn't know this, but there is a large, and some of you may know this, but there's a large um, fishing world competition around here, um, particularly around this time for walleye fish. Um, so there was a competition um, right in Lake Erie, Lake Erie Walleye Fishing Tournament. Um, it was a couple of days ago, September uh, September 30th. Um, that there was um, this competition, these two fishermen who had been winning a lot recently, but there was a lot of controversy over the two guys who were winning, and um, there was rumors that they may be cheating and stuff, but people weren't really sure. And um, so this walleye tournament that happened um, at, the, at the end of September, um, they were um, they won the tournament, and people were selling like they were talking about talking to the fishermen and. These fishermen are really good um, in the sense that they you can hold up a fish, and uh, and they can about judge how much that fish is going to weigh. So if they just see the by, just by eyeballing the the length of the fish and looking at its size, they can they can get a, a general idea how much the fish would weigh. Um, so these guys, when they look at their fish, um, like they might think like, oh, that might weigh, you know. Um, four to five pounds or six to seven pounds, something like that. And then when they actually weigh them, they were more than maybe be like 10 to 11 pounds, right? Or eight to nine pounds. So they're like, there's a lot of uh, head scratching going on to say the least. And then these guys were deemed to win the tournament, but one of the fishermen challenged the results. And then the guy, um, the lead guy, one of the judges went over to their fish and was kind of like, 
looking at them, examining them, and then he felt something weird in the belly of the fish and cut the fish open. Um, and there were all these weights, um, these little um, metal balls, essentially, um, these weights that were inserted into the fish to make them weigh more. Um, so these guys got caught, and the video is online if you want to check it out. <laughs> there may be some foul language because some of the fishermen get uh, pretty extremely upset. Um, and what I learned, too, and this, this made kind of like a national broadcasting because um, I listened to some of the national sports broadcasters, and um, they were talking about this thing that happened in Ohio here in Lake Erie. And, um, but what also I figured, found out is that these fishing tournaments, there's a lot of money in them. Um, I think this one may have been $400,000 uh, grand prize. And over, over the course of a year, these fishermen can make up to a million dollars. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money in <laughs> fishing that I had no idea about. Um, so this is big business, um, and there's a threat that these guys can face felony charges here right in uh, Cuyahoga County Courthouse. So um, really local. Um, but it's also made international news, so that was I found that very interesting. <laughs> so th- there's a story in the Bible about that too. Do you remember that? Uh, well, is it when Jesus asked Peter to fish, and there was a coin in the fish's yeah, mouth? Yeah, I'm taxes, thinking we now. Tax? Yeah, we understand <laughs> now what was really going on right, there. Right. It was a local competition, right? And somebody exactly. had tried to weigh down their their fish. Fish with the tax coins yeah yeah i mean it'd be better to find you know a fish that swallowed money than a fish that swallowed a bunch of a lead weights lead weights <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah like oh what my fish has two hundred dollars in coins which should not work <laughs> no no not so much wow right yeah that yeah that's funny i didn't think about think about that yeah. Local passage. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, uh, Bible skeptics are right. always looking for ways to explain right. how Jesus's miracles and other. I was gonna say maybe didn't was, happen. So right, the fishermen could have said, "Whoa, it's a miracle! It's a miracle! <laughs> right. These fish have weights in them." Yes, yes. This is straight out <laughs> right. of the Bible. Right, yeah. straight out of the Bible. It's exactly. Yeah. Some guys told us to fish on the other side of our boat, and we we decided to do that. <laughs> right. And there's what? There's weights yeah. in them. What? That's, That's why a, we have ten times as many. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. We didn't cheat it, probably. Oh, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, real quick before Stephen reads our chapter for today, um, we wanted to uh, take a moment to respond to a, a question from one of our uh, members of the audience. Uh, Stephen and I get a lot of a lot of fan mail around here. Uh, just always people writing in and, and just telling us how fantastic the podcast is. Uh-huh. And uh, just praising our, our uh, <laughs> expertise and, you know, occasionally asking a question or two. We even thought about hiring somebody to oh, handle yeah, just yeah. fan well, mail yeah, responsibilities because sure. sure. it's really a burden. <laughs> but um, uh, one question that, that came uh, to us was, I thought, a, a really incredible question. And uh, it pertains back to Genesis 1 when we were initially talking about the days of, of creation and uh, the question was uh, along the lines of this why is uh, the christian sabbath uh, celebrated on sundays when initially in in creation the order of the seven days uh, god rested on the seventh day which uh, would have been um, uh, saturday so i guess uh, i think i had encountered that question at some point along the way and had heard some some answers to it but uh, 
Um, I didn't have an answer at the time. I had to dig something up. And um, this is what I, I found. I think this might be part of a larger answer. But uh, early Christians did, in fact, celebrate the Sabbath, just like the Jews, on Saturday for some time. And that uh, began to change, however, late in the first century, first century when uh, Jews began rebelling against uh, their Roman overseers and, and the oppression that they were experiencing. And the, and the Jews actually um, fought and, and rebelled multiple times. Um, and uh, Rome had to go to extreme measures to put down these rebellions, in, in two cases even destroying uh, largely the city of Jerusalem, the temple itself. Uh, this happened in, in AD 70. Uh, the city was again decimated in, in AD 135. And so there was a lot of uh, a lot of tension, a lot of hatred between the Jews and the Romans at the time. So uh, the Christians, trying not to, to become prey to the, the negative feelings the Romans held towards the Jews, decided they wanted to differentiate themselves uh, from them. So many of the Christian churches began celebrating their Sabbath on Sundays. And uh, for a while, there was a difference of opinion on that, and, and different churches did it differently. But uh, ultimately, over time, by uh, definitely by 8,500, if not uh, before, Sunday had more or less won out, and uh, Christians continue to this day to celebrate the Sabbath on, on Sundays. Uh, also, at the time, I guess it helped that uh, the first day of creation, the resurrection of Jesus, both happened on Sundays. So they thought there was uh, reasons that they could justify the change. Uh, so, you know, it, I don't know. It's probably neither here nor there, because um, at least in my mind, I don't know that um, God God's intent was uh, for us to, in a, a legalistic sense, break down the days of crea creation and and stick to um, the exact uh, order, or, or if it's really that essential as much as the concept of Sabbath, and maybe uh, if you want to take the leap to the, the portion proportion of your time uh, given to it, committed to it. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world that uh, we as Christians don't follow that, that initial biblical uh, model that's set out for us. Um, in fact, I found this verse Jesus said in, in Mark 2.27 uh, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, uh, the Sabbath wasn't given to us to uh, bind us into specific you know, um, celebration and, and rituals around it and, and to restrict us. It was given as a source of inspiration and, and guidance um, to empower us to live a certain way and, and have that be a part of our lives um, and Jesus uh, said that when he was getting accusations from people as to why his uh, disciples were picking wheat on the Sabbath or why he was healing people on the Sabbath saying well it's not about um, you know not being able to do common sense things it's it's about just this general concept of of rest and and communion with the Lord so um, so maybe you're you're uh, disgruntled with the early Christians for making that change um, I, ideally, I would love to see it, it change back, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So uh, this, is, this is where we're at, and uh, hopefully you won't lose any sleep tonight because of it. Yeah, <clears throat> I think I've always heard um, what you had said, too, about um, because of the resurrection. Jesus had died on a Friday, um, was buried right Friday, Saturday, and was rose again on Sunday, and and every Sunday is kind of a celebration of the resurrection in some sense, um, because that's the day 
first day that Jesus rose. But I haven't heard the Roman explanation. That's that's new to me. So yeah, that's that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's good. That that's probably what you should have shared for your fit segment. Is that more yeah. interesting? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really good. All right. So we're going to um, continue our uh, series on Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And I'm going to read um, the chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and then Paul and I will um, discuss. We've both done some research on our own and um, um, did some time digging into the passage. And again, I... I've said in almost every one of these podcast series in, on this topic, I, I really do love, um, enjoy digging into Genesis 1 through 3 because it sets the groundwork and the foundation for the rest of the Bible. Um, everything points back to this moment, um, to the garden, to God, to, to deception and sin and evil, but also to goodness and, and blessing and, and oneship and there's a lot of things in the first three chapters that, I mean, you, you can almost find every major theme in the Bible. I mean, I would argue you find every major theme in the Bible in Genesis 1 through 3, even Jesus. So um, it's action-packed. So I'm going to read <coughs> chapter 3. This is going to be from the NLT translation, New Living Translation. Um, just a little side note, every time I say NLT translation, I think BLT <laughs> so it's always funny. So so it's making you hungry. Yeah, right, it does okay. make me hungry. This is gonna be a short episode, right. folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might just start eating on the mic. Uh, well, not eating on the mic, but it's, I might grab a BLT sandwich and eat next hey, to the mic. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, I <laughs> was really concerned. All right, all right. Uh, Genesis chapter three. <clears throat> the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course you may eat um, fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat, eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. <clears throat> the woman was convinced. Um, she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed, sued, sewed. <laughs> fig leaves together to cover themselves and the cool evening breezes well, the cool evening breezes were blowing the man and his wife heard the lord god walking about in the garden so they hid from the lord god among the trees then the lord god called to the man where are you he replied i heard you walking in the garden so i hid i was afraid because i was naked who told you you were naked the lord god asked have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was a woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed 
more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl in your belly, groveling, groveling in the dust as long as you live. It will cause and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you, would, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing for animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground for which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. <clears throat> so there you have it as Genesis chapter 3. And um, a lot happens in Genesis chapter 3, obviously. And um, do you want to, Paul, do you want to start off with thoughts and something, uh, start off the conversation here? Yeah, uh, I'd be glad to. I, I actually have way more notes here than uh, we, <laughs> we will have time to cover. So I'm trying to condense uh, my thoughts a bit. I was uh, starring some of the most interesting tidbits that uh, I unearthed. <clears throat> so I'll yeah I'll just start throwing out some things and and you uh, just holler when you want to um, bounce back or or take lead. But uh, the first uh, the first thing that I encountered was this this descriptor for the snake or the serpent. Um, I think those two terms are actually used kind of interchangeably. Uh, different versions have different uh, terms and. Um, even throughout my life, I've heard snake and serpent used interchangeably, so uh, there's that. But in uh, your NLT, I think uh, it, it used a different adjective. The one in the NIV is uh, crafty, that the mm. serpent was more crafty than <coughs> any of the wild yeah. animals. Yours was what? Shrewd. Shrewd. Yeah. <coughs> so I, I would imagine the original Hebrew term, was um, just translated in different ways, and mm -hmm. so that's where we ended up with this. But this uh, term crafty I, I, I thought was interesting is actually a, a play on the word for naked in uh, Hebrew, hmm. and the idea uh, behind the serpent being crafty is that um, he... Uh, I, I struggled taking my notes throughout this passage whether to call the serpent <laughs> when I was using pronouns a he or an, or an it, um, so uh, anyhow, we'll go with we'll go with he at the moment because that's yet to be determined. Um, once we dig into that uh, portion of what the who the serpent actually is, <coughs> anyhow, back on this crafty thing, uh, crafty in describing the serpent suggests that uh, he 
and the ability to expose the vulnerabilities of uh, the, the humans and, and obviously others around him as well. And that's why it's a, a derivative of the word for naked, because um, he had the ability to expose them to their own uh, kind of inborn weaknesses. So uh, this is the description for the serpent. And uh, we can roll right into the identity of the serpent. And <clears throat> I know you'll get a lot of debate out there when you bring this up in different circles as to whether this truly is supposed to represent Satan uh, quite literally or whether this is just uh, some sort of a third party who's there to play a role in, in the story that God allows to, to play this role. Um, I guess for me, I, I lean towards identifying this as Satan for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it's easier to to do that there's less um there's less refutable evidence to the contrary and, and two i guess um <clears throat> the one thing that popped into my head is is god had just created all of all of creation and um god doesn't create evil god allows uh, free choice for his creatures and they are given the ability to choose evil and that is what um, our understanding of, of the story of how Satan came to be. That is what happened with, with Satan. And so I, I think it makes sense for this to be Satan, for it to be any sort of other entity or, or <clears throat> even just some sort of random third party or uh, product of God's creation that is somehow acting up in an evil way in this moment. I think I'm, I'm not comfortable with that because... Um, that would at least imply that God had somehow played a part in creating this this thing, this force that is evil in this moment, and that's just not God's character. So that's uh, kind of why I lean the way I lean. Well, also I think there's biblical support, um, biblical support for this being Satan. Revelation chapter twelve verse nine says, "The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray." Um, so that's in Revelations, and then I think, and also <coughs> it's referred to again in Romans uh, chapter sixteen, verse twenty. Um, it says, "The Lord God, or the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet." So this is kind of a reference towards what we'll talk about soon about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent under. Um, the feet so the serpent will strike his heel and he will strike his head um, so there is reference to this I would say biblically reference that this is Satan even though it's not um, obviously pointed out in the text itself yeah it's interesting that it doesn't uh, go out of its way to point that out but <clears throat> even the identity of Satan throughout the rest of scripture is um, you know, it's it's assumed in many cases that people are encountering Satan, interacting with Satan, but that term isn't always used. Um, there's other terms that are used for Satan yeah. that uh, we just have to assume are referring <coughs> to him. Right. Um, so another another thing that uh, stood out to me here, I thought, uh, sticking with the the topic of Satan, uh, as lovely as that sounds is his uh, tactics, Satan's tactics here, and I think they're very representative of his uh, approach to humanity throughout history. Uh, what we see Satan doing here, starting from the very first question that he uh, engages Eve with, is is not kind of what people stereotypically en envision Satan doing and being. He's 
he is not somebody uh, that uh, you see coming. So he's not, not going to be uh, holding a pitchfork and, and uh, blazing red with with uh, horns and <clears throat> comes at you from the front. Rather, he's he's much more subtle and, and manipulative with his efforts. He comes at you uh, from from the back when you, you can't see him coming. <clears throat> and he doesn't uh, necessarily, we, we see in this, this passage, he doesn't necessarily tell flat-out lies, as we would refer to them. He He's more uh, manipulating the truth or even speaking truths that um, he's putting in, in contexts that are unhealthy and and uh, not, um, not the way God would intended us to encounter those truths. So we'll maybe continue with that theme later on. But for now, just to this, this idea that he approaches Eve initially and he comes at her as if uh, he's actually... Um, seeking knowledge that he does not have and he expects her to have. So he already is, is kind of uh, making her feel uh, proud and putting her in a, in a vulnerable position because he's playing on, on her uh, maybe need for attention and recognition. So he's seeking this information, and, and as he does so, he's not lying, uh, but his questions are kind of uh, playing the role of leading the witness, so to speak. He's trying to kind of con her or uh, get her to, to think a certain way. Um, <clears throat> and also interesting, you know, when we start looking specifically at this conversation between Eve and Satan, is that the word you uh, that he uses to refer to her is actually plural. So the implication is that, uh, sorry guys, uh, who thought we were off the hook here and, and weren't to blame for the mess of, of humanity, that the man, that Adam, is actually a silent partner in this conversation. He's, he's there at least... Uh, um, somewhere in the vicinity and overhears all of this and just doesn't uh, doesn't react the way that that uh, Eve does initially. So uh, a couple other little nuggets from early in, in the exchange here. I think it's also interesting that <coughs> I guess it must, depending on how far you want to take it, but we're Adam and Eve not surprised that an animal was talking to them. I guess <laughs> too, like right. did, did animals have the ability to speak? I, I don't know. You know, it's like they didn't. They weren't like, "Hey, you're a snake. You shouldn't talk." Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there was that. And I, I mean, I think too that, as you said with Satan, he twists the words of God. And <clears throat> and I would think in verse four, I think that would be the closest to an all-out lie where he said you won't die and where it's a direct literally a direct contradiction of what god said um and i think what happens here what satan is doing and what i think satan does i mean part of what satan's tactics are is he gets he wants eve to doubt god's word Mm. um he wants Eve to doubt god's character and he wants eve to really to doubt god's like um goodness and and which which could go under character um but he wants her to question did god really say this did god really mean this and then with god's character he's like this you know god's holding back on you god is he doesn't trust you there's a sense that um, god is keeping something away from you um and then (coughs) i think one of the ultimate temptations too is that that we face i think as a human society is that satan says you you will be like god um you know and there's also a longing for knowledge there like knowing between good and evil there's a longing for this wisdom and knowledge that 
Satan also used to tempt Eve. And, and, I, and I think when I look at society today as a whole, I mean, those are the things that, you know, I, I think our society wants to be, quote, unquote, a God unto itself. You know, the, have the power over life and death. You think of abortion and, and euthanasia. Um, you think of um, human beings having, I want to die now, or I don't want this child to live. It's a, it's a control of life and death that only God typically, only God has, right? Um, I think there's a longing for in our technologies and what we can do. There's mm-hmm. a longing for being everywhere at, at one presence, at one place, you know, and, and our communication to um, to spread so we can, in a way that we can communicate with anyone and anywhere and have this almost omnipresence of viewpoint and, and making the world a smaller place through the Internet. And I'm not saying all these things are bad, but I think as a society, we, we long for this God-like um, complex to be able to do um, everything that a God, quote-unquote God, would be able to do. Um, and, you know, this is why we, there's always, throughout human history, this search for the, uh, what do you call it, the fountain of life, to have this eternal life, to live forever, to never age, right? It's the longing of the human desire and um, to be godlike-ish um, and also to define what good and evil is for ourselves i mean that's also a i know a human desire as well to we define what good and evil is um, not some god that's over us but we are the definition um, <coughs> we make those standards there's also a longing that that you can see throughout society yeah he's he's clearly planting that seed here right he's <coughs> he's putting in in her head the idea that she can become like God and, and that originates from him. That's not something that she's thinking. We have no reason to think that. That's not something that God has, a right. uh, concept that God has even engaged. God has a plan for his relationship with humanity, and he's already, in so many different ways, made them like him. Uh, he really wants to reign alongside uh, with them. You know, he wants them to, to be... Um, you know, caring for his creation with him, naming the animals with him. He, God has already created humanity to be like him in, in so many different ways, but Satan uh, takes that and manipulates it. Not such that uh, he's, he's telling a lie. He's 100% true when he tells Eve that uh, by eating from the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil that they will be like God. They will see things differently. Uh, it's 100% true. But um, what, you know, what he doesn't explain quite intentionally is that that's not necessarily a good thing. That's not something we should be striving for. And all the, the examples that Stephen just gave is <clears throat> it's not the way it was intended to be um, because we are not God. We can be like him in some regards. We can have his DNA within us. But, uh, um, but there are some things, especially when we're, we are not spiritually mature enough to handle it, um, different points in our lives, and Adam and Eve here were, were not ready for <laughs> for that knowledge. Um, so, we, you know, for them to be just instantaneously granted the ability to see uh, as God does and, and to know what God knows was not a healthy thing for them as it's, it's not a healthy thing for us um, either. And Satan is, you know, I think we, a lot of times we, we think of, once again, a stereotypical image of Satan uh, just out there just wreaking havoc. I think we, we can't lose sight of the fact that Satan's not just trying to be our puppet master, make us do bad things just so he can sit back and get his kicks out of it. He Ultimately, his goal is to destroy the relationship between God and humanity, the trust uh, that humanity has 
uh, placed in God. That's really his his end goal. He could care less, you know, whether we're we're at the 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 store and we we buy a Kit Kat versus a, an apple. He, you know, that's not what he gets his kicks off of. It's it's what whatever it is that uh, comes in between us and uh, God and and destroys our view and and trust in God and and if it happens to be that then Satan will jump in and, and manipulate uh, and take advantage of that opportunity um but uh, that's that's really how he works and it's, and it's uh it's sneaky it's crafty which is exactly what you know what I, I meant to say from the beginning Stephen so I started to look up on my I have a set of bible commentaries or at least a partial set in my office and I pulled out my Genesis one and I was all excited because I knew it had everything I needed to know about Genesis three. I flipped uh, to that section of the commentary. (coughs) Genesis three was missing (laughs) from my kind like the pages just were never there. They never existed. It's like it skipped from the end of Genesis two right into Genesis four. So I'm telling you, Satan is crafty. Even, even for, for our podcast, he's like, no, no, Pastor Paul is not going to have access to Genesis 3. Was it torn out or it just wasn't there? No, it's just that it was like a mistake in the, in the production of the book. It was like, they just forgot to put it in there. Um, So yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just really bizarre like that. Um, And I guess the only thing else I I would mention before, at least for me, jumping into kind of the results of how this played out was uh, this interesting note about Eve responding to Satan saying um, that they weren't able to even touch the tree. So I think Satan's question, find it real quick in the text. Um, Let's see, you may eat. But, uh, yeah, in, in verse uh, 3, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And Eve is saying this, but God never, God never said that. God never forbade them from touching the, the tree. So it's interesting to me here um, that to, to think why did Adam and Eve get to this point where they said we're not even touching that tree. It's almost as if they set up. Um, just uh, protective boundaries for themselves, knowing that this tree was bad. God said, or the, at least the, the results of eating fruit of this tree are bad. God forbade them from doing so. So they created uh, essentially like a, a guardrail for themselves to, to prevent them from even putting themselves in position uh, to eat from the tree. They had decided amongst themselves that they weren't even going to touch the tree. They weren't even going to get close to the tree, which I think uh, suggests maybe, you know, if this isn't a, a reach to imagine that this is the case, uh, a, a sense of wisdom on Adam and Eve's part to prevent themselves, at least to this point, from uh, committing the sin that they were about to commit. Right. I think what's also interesting, too, is that when you as you read this passage, especially as you look at verse 6, um, you can't say, so like sometimes people want to say, like, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil didn't really make them do it. He did deceive. He did coerce them. He did entice them intensely. <laughs> you know, I think uh, Satan is definitely culpable for sure. But at the same time, look at verse 6. The woman is also making a decision. You know, she was convinced um, she saw the tree and it was beautiful. She looked at the fruit and looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she herself, you know, being spurred on by the serpent, but also she is also responsible, you know, through through the temptations that um, that she was giving into, um, and also this this 
when you look at, I think it's John chapter 2, I believe, that speaks about how temptation um, works, and, and it's exactly what's happening here. Like, you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? So you have the lust of the flesh with the fruit looking delicious. It's probably going to taste great. You have the, the lust of the eyes, you know, looking at the tree, and it's beautiful, and it's probably this beautiful tree, right, and the huge tree in the middle of the garden, and then you have this pride, this this desire for pride of life, right? This wisdom would make her smarter than her, make her smarter than her husband, you know? Say, <laughs> like, I want to be so as smarter if, than yeah. Adam. <laughs> as if she needed any help with that, right? She priority had that down. Right. So, I don't know. <laughs> um, but she she desired wisdom, you know? She desired this knowledge of good and evil, this, this knowing, and maybe this knowing and this knowledge would make her um, like God, you know? Um, so this this is something. All these things were working inside. So you have you have Satan um, tempting her. You have her own tempting herself, and the, and and um, being deceived by her eyes and what she sees. And again, this it goes back to the, our own Christian experience. You know, we live in a world that's full of temptations. We live in a world world where I believe the enemy is very active. You know, and and speaking subtly to us. And and then at the same time, I believe we have our own flesh that we deal with what what we see is what we want and and things look delicious and look great and and if we have this thing imagine how what people would say of us if we have this new vehicle if we had this new phone like the pride of life that is that is involved in, in the things that we desire um, all that is working to this day and this is kind of why i said that um, in genesis chapter three you can find just about every <laughs> everything in, in scripture is kind of pointing back um, to this moment um, and then, of course, as soon as they eat um, the fruit, and also I want to point out real quickly, too, that as I think Paul pointed out earlier, is that Adam was with her. So I like to imagine that he's literally, he was probably right beside her. He probably wasn't s- sneaking through the leaves. I'm sure he was literally standing <laughs> right next to her as the, as the snake was talking to her, and he didn't say anything. So his culpability, too, is just he he, I think she is an extension of him as well, like, what he what she did obviously he did as well he didn't even question he just ate it you know he because he was probably listening to the words of satan as well right. he had the same um temptations the same he saw that it was beautiful he lo- looked delicious to him all of that was 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 going through him as well so he's a hundred percent um guilty as well and he ate it um and the moment they ate it their eyes were opened um and the first thing they experienced is shame um, so their eyes are open, and they didn't experience they they did not experience being like God at all. The first thing they experienced um, was the shame of their nakedness, uh, and they sewed fig leaves together. So the the very first among, the very first experience was not joy, it wasn't completeness, it wasn't happiness. There wasn't I'm like God. There wasn't this sense of power. There wasn't this sense of of elation at all. The first sense was shame. Um, and, and again, that I think speaks to the human experience as well. When we're tempted by sin, we give in to temptation, we follow through with that temptation. The Bible says in James that um, sin leads to death, and I think that's what happens when we give in to it. The first thing we experience is death, um, and, we, and we realize of our own guilt and shame of what we have done. So um, again, this, these, these moments point um, throughout, throughout the Bible. 
And this is a, a immediately uh, a reversal of Genesis 2, verse 25, where it said the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And that's contrasted with just a few verses later. <laughs> All of a sudden, that's a, as Stephen described, that's a, their initial reaction, this overwhelming reaction to uh, being able to uh, see good and, and evil, to see through the eyes of God, was to, to experience shame for what they had just done. And uh, their response, I think, is interesting, is to, to try and cover it up uh, once again. As we just said, you know, <laughs> what we see here in the garden is um, setting a, a precedent for what humanity would do throughout all of history. And isn't this exactly what we do? We see it in Adam and Eve here. Uh, we try and cover up the symptoms of our shame, the appearance of our shame and our sin, and that's immediately what they did. They reached around them to try and find ways to cover up their, their nakedness, um, but th by, by no means do they have any sense of the source of their sin and their shame at this point. They're just trying to conceal um, the ugliness that they, they had within themselves because it, you know, it speaks of their nakedness here. It's not just a physical nakedness, though. It, it really is the emphasis is on the shame uh, that they're experiencing their physical nakedness is is just a um, is just a manifestation of that. The sense that all of a sudden they recognize that this is this is not a healthy state for us. And um, later on, just throw this in, maybe getting the uh, getting ahead of ourselves, but uh, because it links when they are confronted by God, um, all of a sudden you know their their nakedness uh, or their their having covered themselves with with clothes is uh, still not protecting them from the shame that they were experiencing in the presence of God. So uh, they hadn't solved the problem. They had tried to cover it up. And uh, I think there's even a term in, in Hebrew um, that appears in the text here that kind of means clothedness. We have nakedness and we have clothedness. And Adam and Eve, when they encounter God um, in the garden immediately after they, they sin, uh, they are they have clothed themselves to try and conceal their sin to conceal their shame uh, yet God sees right through it and uh, the the state of clothedness is not one that uh, jives with the presence of of a perfect and righteous God and so in that moment God takes the the step to uh, clothe them himself even though it's not securing the the root of the problem um, in and in, in providing them more permanent, uh, long-term, uh, you know, stable clothing, he is essentially saying, okay, this is our new reality. This is going to be, we're, we're going to have a uh, broken relationship from this point forwards un until, uh, you know, obviously I come in and do something about it, which is also kind of implied here that God is the one that's actively working with them to try to, to cover their shame and their guilt and provide remedy for it that's uh, almost a foreshadowing of the cross, that, that God is going to be the one that actively comes into their lives and, um, and provides that covering, which uniquely happens in the context of God coming down from above and walking amongst them. Uh, so the imagery here of God coming down, because uh, we, we, we hear in the passage immediately after they clothe themselves, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, and uh, isn't this, a, a, to me, a beautiful 
uh, foreshadowing once again of, of God coming down in the form of Jesus, walking amongst them and bringing with him not uh, not as he did in, in the initial garden through God uh, clothed to just cover their shame, but the actual remedy for their sin and their shame this time through the cross. So uh, when you start connecting these dots, man, it's it's crazy. All the incredible things that are going on and, and symbolized and foreshadowed, represented right here in, in Genesis uh, chapter 3. Um, it's just absolutely incredible to me. And and all of it, even in this ugliness and all the horrible stuff that's going on, the fact that God didn't remain aloof. He didn't just sit back and watch all of this unfold. As soon as he saw what had happened, um, he came down and, and just came alongside them and lovingly wrapped them up, even in, in the midst of uh, the context of their punishment and the consequences they were receiving. He came to be with them in their time of trouble and to, to really, it seems as if uh, in, in a physical presence almost, walking amongst them, walking with them uh, through their struggles, which is exactly what, what God has always done uh, with his children, continues to do today. So uh, just, yeah, so many neat things that come from the imagery that's going on here. And I think going along with that, it's just, <clears throat> there's it also reveals that our internal how we feel internally affects our lives externally because what they felt immediately was that internal feeling of shame which led to their external feeling of no knowledge of nakedness so they could they could cover the physicalness of being naked by leaves but they cannot cover the internal mm-hmm. brokenness of the shame and guilt and that would that would take them all the way. <laughs> it takes us to Christ, who's the one who's obviously the one who could actually um, fix the, the the real problem, which is the shame inside of us. I mean, the guilt and shame and that exists inside. So it's, you know, it's a, it does. And I tell the students this in the youth meeting. I said it does matter um, how we think about ourselves and our lives internally does matter because it affects how we live. Um, if if we live from shame and guilt. Our, our day is going to look different from someone who's like who's accepted God's love and forgiveness and grace they're going to live two different ways you're, um, you're going to live you're going to res- end up in two different places um, so it does matter um, internally and externally um, and really I would say the internal affects the external first and because even if you look like you're put together externally does not mean you're actually are um, so it's possible to be put together and right with God internally, but look like you're not. Um, but it's not the other way around. You can't look like you are, um, which fixes the inside. So, mm-hmm. um, But also trying to um, move along with the passage. Um, well, I also, um, I think I want to point out, too, that they hid from God, which is also interesting that sin causes us to hide um, that's when we hear the Lord walk in the garden. They, the, the natural inclination when you sin is 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 hiding from God, and and then God at this point becomes their enemy. Which we reading in Colossians chapter two, it talks about um, in our minds God's God's been the enemy because of our sin. Um, another thing I like to point out that's verse ten moving along is when God asks them, "Where are you?" and then you immediately see the breakdown, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam starts blaming Eve, which then he, um, in, in essence, blames um, God because he, um, God says, where are you? He said, I was walking in the garden. I was afraid. So what was he afraid of? 
he was afraid of God, so his he did not have fear before, and now he has fear. Um, and it is true, like they did die. There was there was a real death, and that the death between their relationship with God and the death between their relationship with each other was was gone. They may they may not have physically they didn't die, but spiritually and relationally they did die. Um, so they're afraid of God, and then God says, "Who told you you were naked? Who?" Have you eaten from the tree of the garden? And then that's when the man replies, um, it was the woman you gave me. <laughs> like, that's just when I, every time I read that, I just see Adam blaming God. He's like, it's the woman that you gave me <laughs> who gave me the fruit. It's almost like, which is just crazy because in Genesis chapter 2, he's singing the praises like, look at this bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he's just singing the praises of the woman. And he's so excited. And then the very next chapter, he says, the woman that you gave me was the problem. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's 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 incredible. Uh, that this how quick that the turn, uh, how the tables turned, and now he's blaming God um, for the sin that he is also equally guilty of because he was there with her the whole time. Um, so you start seeing the blame game because then the woman starts blaming the snake um, that it was his fault. You know, so it's you start to see them blaming each other and then also blaming God as all the relationships start um, breaking down. It's almost like a, a two-year-old that's, you know, caught in the act and just at, at two years old, you don't have the experience right. uh, to know how to, um, how to handle your shame or how right. to try to get away with something. Right. And so you're just, you're acting on, on impulse and, right. and we see, that kind of impulsive response to to sin and and shame here um, in play perfectly right. with, with the man and the woman blaming each other blaming uh, blaming God right. you know and and how all of these feelings and and uh, notions that have come come into their reality just in an instant and and they mm-hmm. just didn't know how to wrestle with them with these feelings of guilt and shame and and um, uh, almost anger towards each other and uh resentment um you know all of these feelings that they had never experienced before all of a sudden were were upon them and they just blundered their way through it like any little kid might do in the same situation you know so it's it's very telling as to the the power of sin over us and our inability to uh, respond in a healthy way right so as we start to look maybe more at um, the uh, what uh, some scholars have dubbed the sentencing, because uh, truly this whole passage is um, broken down much like a, a, a court case. Um, the the first passage is the committing of the transgression, uh, the first like seven verses or so, and then you get about uh, five or six verses of the inquest, the the inquiry of uh, what has happened, and then here starting in verse uh, 14 or so is when we proceed to the sentencing um, that God is, is going to rule over what has taken place here. So as we move on to that, we see God really uh, almost uh, uh, in a, a courtroom speech type of setup here, pronouncing his sentence on, on what has taken place. There are consequences for each of the parties involved, and um, each of the consequences in, in large part pertains to the primary roles that each of these individuals have been called to play in God's creation. Uh, so the the, um, the serpent is, is punished within its uh, stature amongst other animals to, to fill a role on earth. The woman is, is uh, punished in 
the sense of her role as wife and, and mother um, are, are both affected. And the man as uh, tiller of soil and, and provider of food, his, his role in creation is impacted as well. And in the process of receiving these consequences, every single uh, relationship that existed was disrupted by the sin and the consequences of that sin. Uh, and Stephen kind of mentioned this before, that their relationship with one another, their relationship with um, the ground, you know, Adam and Eve to one another, their relationship to the ground, their relationship to the animals, um, God's relationship with humanity. You know, all of these relationships are, are disrupted and um, these these concepts like humiliation and, and uh, suffering and struggle and conflict and domination, all of these are, are brought in by the consequences of the sin that has just been committed. And um, I, I think yeah, I, I have no qualms here about saying that God uh, providing these consequences um, wasn't going out of his way to avoid these things because he's trying to show us as, as his audience uh, throughout history that these are the consequences of sin. Um, he's not uh, forcing them into suffering and struggle and humiliation and, and dominating over one another, but these are the byproducts that will come of uh, the consequences that he's provided them. Even, uh, you know, every aspect of human life is impacted. So we see references to um, marriage, you know, how the, the marriage rules are impacted by the sexuality, uh, birth and, and death comes into play, you know, so we see whether you, you take um, that uh, the, the humans would surely die when they ate of the fruit, whether you took that to be um, just a metaphor for their spiritual death that they would experience, or you take it to mean physical death, both uh, came to pass. The physical death was not immediate, but we hear in, in God's pronouncement that um, they would have limited lives. They would not uh, have access to immortality that the tree of life in the garden might have given them access to. Instead, they're banished, uh, and we'll get into that in a second, banished from the garden, no longer have access to that. So even death has become a certainty. So in the sentences of, of each of these individuals, we see all of life and all of uh, uh, relationships that existed completely disrupted and churned upside down and, and that really is the product of of sin uh weighing on our lives right and well i've also <coughs> what's interesting too is the things that were meant to be a blessing become um broken you know so the the blessing of a marriage partner and the blessing of children now has become tainted by the curses as paul just mentioned so the those moments of life's greatest blessings marriage and children uh, but now become um become painful consequences because of the rebellion of God. Um, but also, um, to one thing I wanted to point out, just going a little further back, is that this is kind of funny when the serpent said, you will be like God. The thing that's interesting is that they were already like God because they were created in God's image. So the truth is they were already like God, but somehow there was something else that they desired or something more that they desired. Um, and one thing I want to point out, too, that's typically pointed out here in Genesis is Genesis chapter 15, which many people believe and I believe is the first prophecy of Jesus. Um, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So um, this verse is, is, is quoted in other places in Scripture, and um, and I do believe it, it is reference, the early reference of Jesus. And again, 
that's kind of why I say this Genesis chapter 3 I mean all the first three chapters and but in Genesis chapter 3 you see so much of the groundwork and the beginning plan of God um, and the redemption of, of humanity like as Paul said God immediately starts beginning the process of covering their nakedness and also begins a long long process the long road of, of Christ coming to, to cover the real root of the issue is the shame and guilt um, that we feel um, because we're all guilty of sin. Um, we, we've all, I like to say this to myself, that we're all Adam and Eve, that we've all been deceived by the serpent. We've all made the decision to eat of the fruit, and we've all made, we've all seen things that look beautiful to the eye and look delicious, and, and we've all sought to gain a wisdom that's beyond um, what God um beyond God's word and and we all at some point have doubted God's word and his character Um, but again going back to verse 15 we see that this is the coming um, the beginning um, of Jesus um, the prophecy of Jesus um, the to come and heal and and bring restoration um, back and and also too as when you look in revelations um, there's a lot of reference back to this chapter chapter 3 and and one of those biggest references is to the garden. Um, there's another garden again um, that we come back to. And, um, and as Paul said um, about the banishment that, that happened, that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. So. Yeah, it's, it's really both uh, as, as we wrap up this chapter and the, the concluding notes here that there's clearly been a, a death. There's been something tragic that has happened here. Um, and there's no escaping that, and there's a lot of emphasis on that, and we're supposed to mourn. It's it's heavy stuff, but there's also a hint of new life. So in, in, in the death, you see um, this image of Adam and Eve being escorted out of the garden and, like, God shutting the, the gates behind them, so much so that there's a, a cherubim <laughs> place there, you know, holding a sword, or at least that's our, our image of it, holding the sword. And the cherubim is like the, the presence of God and God's protection over his sanctuary, over his uh, place of residence. So this opportunity for some, something of a, a paradise on earth is no longer a possibility. So this beautiful reality that Adam and Eve uh, existed in for some time has is, is just been officially shut down. Like the dream is over. We're coming back to, to real life. And, and uh, that's it's no longer possible. So they have to adjust to this new reality that uh, what they knew to be beautiful and perfect was is no longer accessible to them. Um, but and uh, even even uh, being cut off from the tree of life also in, in the garden is a, a big one because there's this implication that they could have lived forever. They could have been immortal just like God if they hadn't have been banished from the garden. So uh, they've officially lost their, their access to that. But if you think about it, if death has been uh, pronounced as, as becoming a part of life, you know, this is part of the consequence of the, of the sin that they've committed. Death has now become a part of life. And if that truly is the case, do they really want to live eternally if they're going to be experiencing all of this pain and, and sorrow and, and death along the way? Um, you know, in the process of, of living eternally with God. So it would not it would not have worked anyway, even if they were to remain in the garden. So God boots them out, but he also leaves this nugget of, of foreshadowing and hope in, as uh, Stephen was describing, the, um, the seed coming and 
striking the head of, of the serpents, you know, representing uh, many believe Christ in that moment. And then I, I think even in verse um, 20 of chapter 3 here, it says, just simply says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. You know, you, you might ask yourself, why are we waiting until chapter uh, 3, verse 20 to give Eve her name? Um, why is it and why is it dropped here in this mo this most bizarre place? You know, we're in the middle of covering all of this territory of all these other things. This verse just really seems out of place. And uh, someone suggests it's placed here because we need in the midst of all this horrible stuff, a reminder that life is going to go on. Eve is living. She is going to be the mother of all living uh, relationship is broken, but they will press on nonetheless. There will be streams in the deserts and, and just all of these themes that will be then brought into Scripture um, as life goes on, as reminders that there is still hope. There is still a, a, a future of promise awaiting them. And, and we get the first uh, sense of that here right in the midst of all this horrible stuff and the consequences being played out. We get this just quick nugget of, of hope and promise here in verse 20 that uh, things are going to ultimately be okay. So, uh, and I think that's a great way to to leave us today with that reminder that in the midst of all of this stuff that, that represents so many larger themes in Scripture and so much of it, just the, the reality of the ugliness of sin and uh, the consequences that it's played on our relationships with one another, our relationship with God, that there is still a nugget of hope. And in fact, that, that seed of a uh, woman that has come and, and uh, struck in the heel of the the serpents is our source of hope and so we live in a time where all we have to do is is claim him and, and strive to follow him and all of the realities of of um the fall of humanity uh can largely be undone in our lives and, and certainly in our eternal future so uh just to hope we can leave us with a sense of hope anything Stephen, that you want to throw in yeah and <coughs> last thing i say we also see god's grace as well because you can imagine that you don't um, that he wanted to keep them from the tree of life so that they wouldn't live forever because that's well, a sign of grace because that would you wouldn't want to live uh, in the world the way it is today forever. Um, there's mm -hmm. just so much brokenness and pain and death and um, we don't. This isn't a world that we that we want to live forever in. And God says, no, I have a greater world, a better world, a redeemed world, a resurrection world that He was planning that you know that was on His mind. Um, here at the very beginning so he's like no we're not going to live in this world forever there's there's something greater in store so i, I figure that's a sign of god's grace um towards humanity um so yeah i think this this is a a chapter that has a, a lot of um beginning of sin and but also has we see the beginning of god's love forgiveness and grace and we see also this the greatness of god's character um, so thank you all for listening. Thank you for uh, listening to this series. It's been a lot of fun for us just uh, learning and, and digging into each passage. And I, and I pray and I hope that this, um, the work that we put in can be a beneficial to you and your faith and help, um, help your faith journey as, it, as it's helped ours. Um, thank you for the comments and questions and, and the support. We really appreciate it. Um, and hopefully we can see you in church. Um, and thank you all for listening, and we're excited about the next series to come. <laughs>